This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning. Hello. Hello to all of you and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. To all of you and an exceptionally warm welcome today to Edna O'Brien, who I'm delighted and honoured to be sharing the platform with. My name is Sarah Davis and I'll be conducting the first part of uh, this afternoon, we are actually already in the afternoon, <laughs> I'll be conducting this afternoon's first part of the discussion and there will of course be lots of time for you to put your own questions to Edna. Um, just to fill in very briefly, I realise that an author introduction to someone as uh, prolific and successful as Edna O'Brien could take up the whole of our 55 minutes, so I will make it very quick and fill in the last few decades um, very quickly. Since Edna's first novel, The Country Girls, which was published back in 1960, she has actually written a further 17 novels, gathering prizes along the way as she goes. Um, I believe nine collections of short stories, of which Saints and Sinners, which was published in 2011, won the very prestigious Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. She's also written biographies of James Joyce and Lord Byron, several plays, and a memoir called, aptly enough, The Country Girl. Um, her latest novel was published last autumn, after a gap of nearly 10 years since her previous novel, and it garnered absolutely rave reviews everywhere. It's called The Little Red Chairs, and critics were unequivocal about it. Um, her masterpiece, said Philip Roth, and Julie Myerson in The Guardian called it a spectacular piece of work, and it is indeed a spectacular piece of work. I'm going to introduce it very briefly and then ask Edna to take over. It begins in very recognisable O'Brien territory. We're in a quiet pub in a small community on the west of Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland. It then opens onto a far larger and more shocking canvas. The arrival of a stranger in town is what starts the story going. And I won't tell you too much about this because Edna herself is going to read a little from the first little chapter, the, the opening <laughs> chapter of the book. Um, we will then talk a little bit about this book in particular for those of you who haven't read it, just to give you an idea of just what it deals with and for those of you who have read it please save your questions and then as I say I'll open the proceedings up to you and I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions both about this and about any of the 20 odd other books that you might have read by Edna O'Brien. So shall we start off Edna by just asking you to read a short reading and uh, uh, in the past, when uh, William Thackeray and Dickens wrote for weekly magazine or monthly, whatever it was, uh, parts of their novel, it always, uh, each section or each issue, it always said, to be continued. So I will read a bit and then we'll continue. Uh, I should know it by heart. I think I know it by heart, but it might be a risk. 
I might miss out on an adjective. <laughs> the town takes its name from the river. The current, swift and dangerous, surges with a manic glee. Chunks of wood and logs of ice borne along in its trail. And in the small sidings, where water is trapped, stones, stones, blue, black, and purple shine up out of the riverbed, perfectly smoothed and rounded. And it is as though seeing a clutch of good-sized eggs in a bucket of water. The noise is deafening. From the slenderest twigs of the overhanging trees in the folk park, the melting ice drips with a soft, susurrous sound. And the hooped metal sculpture and eyesore to many locals is improved by a straggling necklace of icicles, bluish in that frosted light. The stranger stands by the water's edge, apparently mesmerized by it, bearded and in a long black, a long dark coat and white gloves. He stands on the narrow bridge, looks down at the roaring current, then looks around, seemingly a little lost. His presence, the single curiosity, in the monotony of a winter evening, in a freezing backwater that passes for a town, and is named Clunarilla. Long afterwards, there would be those who reported strange occurrences on that same winter night. Dogs barking crazily, as if there was thunder, and the sound of the nightingale, whose song, whose warblings, had never been heard so far west. The child of a gypsy family who lived in a caravan by the sea swore she saw the puka man coming through the window at her, pointing a hatchet. Dara, a young man, his hair spiked and plastered with gel, beams when he hears the tentative lift of the door latch of the pub and thinks a customer at last with the fecking drink driving laws business is dire <laughs> married men and bachelors up the country parched for a couple of pints but too afraid to risk it with guards watching their every sip squeezing the simple joys out of life evening sir he says as he opens the door and sticks his head out remarks on the shocking weather that's in it. And then both men, in some initiation of camaraderie, stand and fill their lungs manfully. So they're inside, and Doris, Doris put a bit of sugar on the briquettes for a bit of atmosphere, playing the pogues and so on. <laughs> and is uh, a blatherer by nature. So Dara unfolds his personal history just to keep the ball rolling. My mother a pure saint, my father big into youth clubs, very against drugs and alcohol. My little niece, my pride and joy, just started school, has a new friend, Jennifer. Work two bars, here at TJ's and the castle at weekends. Footballers come to the castle, absolute gentlemen. I got my photo taken with one, read Pele's autobiography, powerful stuff, powerful stuff. 
I'll be going to England, to Wembley later on for a friendly with England. Booked our flight, six of us. The accommodation in a hostel, it's bound to be a gas. I go to the gym, do a bit of cardio on the plank. Love my job, my motto is, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Never drink on the job though, but I do like a good pint of Guinness when I'm out with the lads. Love the football, love the films too. Saw a great film with Christian Bale, oh, he's the dark knight and all. But I wouldn't be into horror now, no way. So there we begin, and to be continued. <laughs> Now, for, for those of you um, paying attention, there were several clues in that, even in that opening section, that this stranger in town was not on a benign mission. What the town itself doesn't know, but that we know very early on, and in fact, right at the very beginning of this book, if we haven't picked up on the title, The Little Red Chairs, there is, in the frontispiece, a little just a few lines and I'm going to read them because this is what you will read before you read the story of this charismatic stranger with his white gloves on the 6th of April 2012 to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the start of the siege of Sarajevo by Bosnian Serb forces 11,541 red chairs were laid out in rows along the 800 meters of the Sarajevo high street one empty chair for every Sarajevan killed during the 1,425 days of siege. 643 small chairs represented the children killed by snipers and the heavy artillery fired from the surrounding mountains. So it doesn't take an awful lot of intuition to realize that the charismatic stranger who announces himself in this small west of Ireland town as a healer and sex therapist, much to the turmoil of speculation and excitement amongst the population, obviously, Dr. Vlad, as he calls himself, is suspiciously like the person that we know as Radovan Karadzic. No one yet knows that he is not a benign magician, as he at first seems, but his mission is one of destruction. Um, this basing of a character, Edna, on a man. Sorry, are you asking me now? I'm yeah. now going to ask Good. you. I, want, I just wanted to make sure that the reader is where we are, that the listener here is where we are as a reader when we first start this book, because I think the red chairs is very important. What drew you to, to the subject? Where did this particular story come from, apart from the newspapers? Well, a story... There's theme and story when one writes a book. And then there's what I call the seed. This, and they all have to come together for, it, for the author to want to do it. For a long time, some would say for too long a time, I wrote about love. Sorry to mention that. One of my books is called The Love Object. I wrote about young girls in The Country Girls and the trilogy. And I wrote about things within the confines, which is also to say the knowledge and experience and sensual life of landscape and all of my own country. 
So I, it took me many years to cover ground that I felt extremely passionate about and that I was, I felt these stories needed to be told. Like one story called A Scandalous Woman ends with saying ours was indeed a sacrificial land, a land of shame. And I was writing particularly about women and their feeling about themselves and their being and their power or their powerlessness. But one learns from life, at least I hope one learns from life. I'm trying to, still. And I began about um, in the last four books prior to The Little Red Chairs. I began to write uh, uh, stories that were in a sense political, but the narrative was personal. Because I don't believe in taking, as is advised by some uh, theatre companies even, that we live in a world with all these problems, which we know we do, and therefore it must be written about. I support that it must be written about, but it cannot be written about unless in some way one knows it from the inside. I have more respect for quite a lot of uh, very great and brave uh, reporters who go to the war zones, who go into the trenches, who absolutely see camps, who see this, that and the other. Now, I, I did, as I say, House of Splendid Isolation down by the river, all with themes that were both, that were outside of me, but that I could not have written unless there was a corresponding echo within myself to explore that story. So as the world got more and more, has got, as we all know, I don't mean to spread gloom, but we all know that each night when you turn on television or listen to the wireless, uh, that these horrors, which we didn't know about, even if they existed, we wouldn't have known about in the past. But now information, information is everywhere. So the idea of a killer who is also a mesmerizer, um, for a long time, maybe it was because of reading Dracula as a child, which was written by an Irishman, Bram Stoker, but for a long time that has um, taken up a lot of my thinking and um, well, not meditating over, but pondering over. And the following thing, so the theme was, in answer to your question, or uh, one bit of the answer is, I wanted to write something a world, about the world, forgive the posh word global, but I did, but at the same time that I wasn't talking rubbish, that I knew it, I grasped it by luck or by intuition or by many things. And one evening, I was in Europe, quite a long time ago now, and I turned on uh, television, CNN, and there I see this war uh, warrior, as he would be known as in the past, uh, Vladimir Karadigets. Two photographs, one was of him in heroic mood, with hair airbrushed, going up a hill with his cohorts, ready for the next kill. And then, contrasting with it, I saw this, what seemed, holy man being taken off the bus. He was in a black robe, 
He had gray hair, he had a ponytail, he had a crystal, and he was, looked like a, a, an apostle, or Moses. It was very benign, they asked him his name, he said yes, they said, we, we believe you're not the person you... They knew well who he was, but in Belgrade, they didn't want to give him over, and then they gave him over eventually, because Milosevic, his former friend, wanted to join the European Union. That's just back history. So I saw that and I thought, this transformation is in its way. He may be a thwarted and indeed terrible person, but this transformation is brilliant. And I then looked up some link lore on him and read that indeed, for 12 years, he had practiced as a healer and sex therapist, which is re relevant, and he had actually learned that trade from a six weeks correspondence course. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I might take a course <laughs> in that something. <laughs> and um, I then met people from Serbia, uh, or from, Bo sorry, from Bosnia, who were in the siege of Sarajevo, and it, I was amazingly lucky. This is another part of the the progress of work in progress. I'm, the first person I met was a writer, Alexander Hemmen, uh, who had written, and I said, I'm very sorry, but you will think I'm an imposter because I'm coming into your territory. But for some reason, I want to write this book. And he said, no, no, and he introduced me to people. And then I met people who had been in the siege of Sarajevo. So I already knew that my book would start, as they always do, in a landscape I know very well. I know the wind, the weather, the ice, the snow, the this, the that, what a man in a pub is doing, old candle stumps set to light the fire, etc. But I wanted to spread out. And the people from Sarajevo, who were the woman who showed me the photograph of the little red chair, she, she said, I'll show you this. And it was an installation that happened 25 years after the siege of Sarajevo. And a lot of dignitaries from around the world came and everyone thought, oh, poor Sarajevo, what it's been through. But when they came, when the little red chairs were put down, it was then tears were shed because somehow the full consequence became more. So that was another uh, piece of inspiration. And I had been calling the book in my mind the Redeemer before that, but of course he's not a Redeemer, a killer. And the beautiful thing about naming a book is like naming a child. Once you have that name, that's it. I didn't uh, back that. So I had a lot of different bits of help, uh, read uh, poems he had written and speeches he had made, and then of course set out for The Hague, where the uh, trials were. And the first day I went to The Hague, I was very nervous somehow, and they were very, very formidable, the Dutch, in that part, in The Hague anyhow, in that trial place. So I was given my seat, and to my great disappointment, it's like going to see Lawrence Olivia in Richard III, and he's not on. <laughs> <laughs> he's understudy, but he, he had a, some illness. Um, they often faked illness. And his colleague, Mladic, was on instead. So I sat through that. And one of the things that 
I felt that day that later was proven when I went back again and again, was the total imperviousness, the total denial, the total omission of everything they did. Not only that, but the swagger and the bravura and the contradiction in the court, like there were witnesses who had said, yes, I was taken, I was put onto a bus, I mean, the few who escaped. Mm. And as those witnesses were giving their very nervous um, evidence, it's going, no, 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 calling it, people from his team over it, to, to, count, to contradict. And that inflamed me even more because awful deeds are awful deeds. But the fact that those who do them are allowed by God or by nature or by cunning or by whatever else to completely obliterate them. You see, I always call it the Scottish play and I'm very pleased to be saying it in a Scottish city. But in the Scottish play, Shakespeare, being Shakespeare, gives Macbeth a brief crackdown when he says he will never sleep again and the bloodied daggers, is this a dagger which I see before me and so on. Lady Macbeth does crack and go mad. But throughout history, except for their last days, Hitler went mad in the bunker. Stalin went so mad in his last 36 hours, even his doctors were afraid to go in. So it does come. Retribution comes, but it doesn't come in time. And my way of dealing with that, without it being... A book has to be very human. A book has to have all different human elements, like the seven strands of a rainbow. A hate book is really an editorial. And the only way I was able to address uh, the character whom I call Dr. Vladimir Dragon, because that was close to what he called himself, one is D-R-O-G-A-N and one is D-R-A-G-A-N, was, uh, I have a scene in the book where she does go to the Hague, my character Fidelma, uh, uh, a heroine in every sense, which I talk about in a moment, if I may. She does go in person. I didn't go to tell you all the honest truth because I wouldn't be allowed. But I did go to the jail where he and his cohorts have steaks and red wine every evening and a wing of their own. And I was shown by guards, but not let in. So she does go and she tries to tell him her story. And I'll briefly, briefly only, her story is that she lived in the village where he came, the village that I read to you from. She had a shop. It was a little couture shop. She might sell something like this or what you're wearing. She went to Paris once a year to buy clothes. She bought a pink corset, which was a scandal. <laughs> and there and she, had it in the window. And had it in the, their yeah. shop went bust when um, when the uh, credit when Ireland crashed. So she, they have to let their they let their shop. It so happens they let it to him for his consulting rooms. Like everybody, she becomes smitten by this extraordinary man, whose very hands have a healing quality, whose voice is soft, whose voice is persuasive who also coaches children in football, who watches in the pub and they get special plum brandy for him because he doesn't have whiskey and so on. 
So she not, they all are beguiled by him, and he does actually cure people. He cures people of fits and, and eczema and things, because he has powers. There's these two sides to the coin he of evil and good. So she yes. um, falls in love with him, and she falls in love with him to the point that one night, and this is where we know she has got out of control. One night she dreams, she's in bed with her husband, which she actually is, her much older, good-natured, but a little bit boring by now husband. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to insult any gentleman in the audience. <laughs> and she uh, dreams that she wanted very much a child. And she tried to have a child, she and her husband, and it did not happen two or perhaps three times. She's in bed, and she dreams that Dr. Vlad is delivering, at that moment, a child of hers, which is really his child, not her husband's. And that sends her so askew that she gets out of bed and drives to where he's in the consulting rooms where he meditates every morning. And she doesn't fully reveal what she wants, but it is clear that to use that old-fashioned word, she has fallen in love. James Joyce said, first we feel and then we fall. And I'm not sure it's first we fall and then we feel. <laughs> so her story has to, had to counteract with his. And uh, there was I uh, in The Hague imagining how I would be if I were to have an appointment with this man, which, by the way, was not impossible. Mm. His lawyer said to me, he admires you. I thought, uh oh, uh, oh, uh. <laughs> he has read your book on James Joyce. But I didn't meet him, but his lawyer was most effusive about him and said, I think you would both like each other too much if you met. There's no end to human blindness, psychic as well as physical. And all the ingredients of the book had to come together from that small beginning in which the deceiver comes, in which love comes, and then barbarity. And the chapter, which I won't talk about, not because I don't want to, but you have plenty of time to read the book, the chapter which is called Capture, which involves, in which he has, he has finally found and captured. It took me um, the best part of six months to just write that one chapter. Because when you write about something sensational, uh, gory, ugly, uh, sexual, all those words, there has to be a very, not delicate in the sense of omitting the horror, but you have to have such precise in and out of what is happening. You have to keep remain poetic while being true to it. And I had two great models for that. Because when I'm writing a book, any particular book, there are certain books I have beside me all the time. For that book, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad was a great. But the, for the chapter that I'm talking about that took the six months, I said, at this rate, I'm getting paid late, less than any human being in the universe. <laughs> the, um, I read Ernest Hemingway's short story, which is one of the greatest short stories I've ever read, called The Killing. And The Killing, so to speak, you know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. 
The tension is absolutely, the two gangsters come to the, a bar. They're not gangsters, they're worse, they're criminals. They're ready, they come to find some. You know it's going to happen. You think, oh, can I bear this? And my other model, in a quite different way, years ago, this sounds terribly lofty, but I'll never forget the experience, and it might have been here at Edinburgh, of seeing Kabuki Theatre. And Kabuki Theatre is both, well, it's magical. You both see what you're seeing, but you also see what's invisible by a, by a, I don't know how, in fact, they do it. So I had to get my heroine after what was violation of her to London, and that's where all the refugees came in, because she becomes one of the ghost people, one of the dregs of the city of London, night people who work in banks, who are never seen, only by each other, and they're all so busy doing what they have to do. And then I went back for the third part of the book to the hearing and everything, and there was one thing all through that was absolutely dogging me. I thought, I have a good story, yes, helped by circumstances and assiduousness, if I may boast. How am I going to end this book? And I won't spoil it for you in any way, but it's a long reply to you ask me my reasons for writing this particular story, because the last three, two lines, or one and a half lines of the book is, you would not believe how many words there are for home and what savage music that can be wrought from it. So the book is ultimately about our search, whether we're in wars or whether we're lucky enough not to be in wars, whether we're displaced or whatever we are, there is in us as human beings from the moment we are born or maybe before we are born, this longing, this ache for home. Some people call that God, and it might be God, I don't know. So once I knew that I didn't want to have an ending that, oh, she's fine now, she's hunky-dory, she has met someone in London, you know, all those predictable, unbelievable endings and cathartic endings which sicken me. People say, you know, at last they've forgiven everyone and, and they've found peace and they've found harmony and they do headstands. Drives me mad, <laughs> drives me insane. So it's a long answer, but I wanted to, for all the wonderful visitors here to somehow put it into words. I think it's a fantastic answer, Edna. Thank you very much. It's an answer deserving of that round of applause. I've got, I've got a question which I would like to ask you as a follow-on to that, which is Fidelma, your character you spoke about, yes. who suffers this atrocity, and I have to warn any of you who haven't read the book, there is a need at a certain point for a strong stomach, but, but it's absolutely justified, and as Edna said, every word is chosen carefully. But Fidelma does find a kind of redemption, and it seems to me that, as you say, it's not a happy ending, but it is a redemptive ending, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that she hears other people's exactly. stories. She, is a yes. she becomes a listener She's a witness to others, to others yes. and not alone herself. And she opens with great hesitation 
because she's a, a destroyed person and can never go back to that place in Ireland, or at least not while she's this wounded creature. Uh, I suppose storytelling is one of the greatest things in the world. The Bible is a great story, forgive me. It's a religious book, but my version of the Bible, at the heading says, uh, the Bible as living literature. And what she does, or falls into by luck, by being in these poor circumstances, she meets people she would never have met. And because they all have been flung out of countries or left countries because of war or this, that, and the other, they're all seekers. And they all, she, she doesn't throw herself into it at first, but she becomes the receptacle for these stories. And that saves her from the inner madness, because the inner madness, as Virginia Woolf beautifully and continuously in, in uh, The Waves and To the Lighthouse, no matter what she wrote about, madness was always there. And it's very great theme, so I'm not in any way dismissing it. But I wanted, as I say, to bring the world, in a way, to my little story. And she is enabled to bring the world or to attend, to, to attend places where people are. And she finds the first night she goes, everybody's story is pretty awful. And they tell it with such truth. Because when you've been through awful things, there's no time for lies anymore. Lies have been omitted. There's only the, the truth as it spills out. And I'll never forget, because I went to a lot of these meetings, I'll never forget the different stories people told. And they told them with such a trust. You know, they didn't think, oh, are you from a newspaper? They told them to help others, but also to help themselves. And there was a beautiful little girl, and there were many people. There was one boy who had been in a camp in Sarajevo with his brother, and he was invited to stand up. He started to laugh. And he laughed for about five minutes, very embarrassingly. And then he said, as you see, I am not a good talker. And then somebody, the woman who ran, runs it, a great woman, uh, she said, well, tell us something. Well, he said, I had the same experiences as my brother. I was taken on a bus one morning. My mother knew she would never see us again, etc. My brother remembers everything. And I remember nothing. And he says to me, when, we, when you saw those castrations in those camps, what they did in the room where all the others were, hot rooms, belting music, all these physical horrors, what were you thinking? And he said, I told my brother that what I thought of when I saw those things was the blue of the rivers, the icy rivers, when they came down from the mountain and made uh, rivulets and water. And he meant it. He wasn't telling her. But there was one little girl there, whom I'll never forget. And she's in a big house with 17 others, a uh, government house, all waiting for the letter from the Home Office. Will they be allowed to stay? All going down to the hall and indeed jostling each other. For the but I said to her one day, um, what would you like to do for New Year's Eve? She said, 
to see the lights. You know, something so, this girl living in this gloom. And that's what I mean by truth. There was no ornamentation. There was no building. And therefore, Fidelma, because I think each book you write, I'd, I wouldn't be able to say if Sigmund Freud came in and said, what's the biggest change in you? But every book one writes, and any author, my friend Ian Rickson, whom I met a minute ago, would say the same. Every book you write changes you a little bit. And then you have to do the next change, and the next change. Oh, 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 oh. words fail me here. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> well, words to, for... To explain. No, words to fill. Uh, you asked me out in the, in the, what's it called, the hospitality room. You did ask me, didn't you? There was another gentleman there, and you said, what is it that... He said to me, was I writing another book? And I said, I'm not sure, I'm groping. And you said, well, what is it that really does it? And I think I said, it's that sudden spark out of the ground, and you reminded me of the mandrake. Uh, and it's that, and until that comes, sure, I'd like to write, every day you open a paper, and especially provincial papers, there's amazing stories. The world is full of stories. It's to find the key to tell them that they seem like new, and that they're both the story you've read, the story you have uh, taken into yourself, internalized, and that you then give back out. So the three different kind of processes to it, and they're all from the unconscious. So all of that allows me to say that the life of a writer, particularly this writer as my publisher, is constantly putting on the back of my books, my great friend Lee Braxton, in her ninth decade. <laughs> I say Lee, and Kate Burton from Faber is here, she'll tell him this, he'll be thrilled. I'll, I say Lee, is it necessary each time <laughs> in my ninth decade? So in my ninth decade, I am searching around and I pray and I really do pray that I can find another book. Well, that mandrake root will come out screaming from the ground. Yes, I have, <laughs> I have the stick <laughs> to help dig around the clay. Um, I'm going to open this up now to any of you who have questions you would like to ask. I'm sure you know the form. If you would wait until you get a microphone that comes to you because the acoustics are not perfect, wave your hand gentleman over there is first up and we will come to you and then to you sir so Sarah um, if I can't hear the question will you repeat it thank you very much yes. do speak up if you don't mind because it is slightly difficult to hear now we have a fan going as well we have our own ninth decade deafness we have a fan <laughs> we have lots I think the more you remind us about that the more admiration you will have I'm looking <laughs> for, yeah, I'm searching yeah. I'm, 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 I'm cadging here um, yes. Edna, uh, oh. the, the, you touched on, on what I, the, the question that I want to, wanted to ask when you talked about the provincial stories. Um, in a world that increasingly seems to become obsessed with the metropolitan, what do you think it is that, that keeps literature rooted in the provincial? What do I think literature... What keeps literature rooted in the provincial? Is there, some, is there a way of keeping literature rooted uh, in the provincial? It depends on the writer. 
The question is, is, is there a way of keeping stories not metropolitan but rooted in the provincial? That's the question, sir, yes? I'll, t I'll give you two examples quite, quite contrasting. One of my <coughs> great friends is Philip Roth, who's never written about a tree or a stream as far as I know. He's <laughs> always written about New Jersey and written brilliantly. And his books are, without doubt, metropolitan. However, the story uh, takes place in, often within his family. The story, stories happen in cities as well as country or in small places. Stories are everywhere. It depends literally on the geography, the accident of geography and temperament of the writer. My mother and father uh, lived in Brooklyn uh, and their first child, my brother, was actually born in Brooklyn. And I've often thought to myself, if I had been born in Brooklyn and grew up there, my books would have a completely different color texture. For me, Ireland, and especially that part of Ireland, County Clare, is the locus for everything I write, starting from the country girls. I waken quickly and sat up in bed abruptly, etc., etc. Because I know that landscape. I will know it when I'm dead. I will know it in all... In, I, it can, it, I can summon it up without thought, even. And the reason I began even this story there, which was to then spiral out into world story is I wanted for myself and my readers whom I don't know but for my ideal readers for all my readers to feel lo rooted located rooted in a place and therefore if you like a, f a fairy tale even though it's not going to be a fairy well maybe it is like a real fairy tale because they all have such dark themes I couldn't, for instance, have set the story in Sarajevo. Uh, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to. So both are valid, it doesn't matter. Provincial is fine, and it isn't a, a, de a demeaning or secondary thing. Neither is metropolitan. What matters is the truth, the truth, the truth of those words and what they do to the other person. That's all that counts. I'm a very impatient reader. I'm a serious reader, and I'm a deep reader. But if I find, or are given a book, get sent a lot of books, if I find after a couple of pages, this is not for me, I'm not going to persevere. Because I want literature to be literature, not just words flung down Ex exaggeration, lack of, lack of precision, and lack of that intimate, flawless communication between the unknown reader and the unknown author. And I love that. And when I get that, when I, as a reader, when I get that, I love that author. I've strayed off the question, but as you may know by now, it's my... And there was another que uh, question there. What books and authors did you love the most and influenced you the most to become a writer when you were a youngster and, and just emerging as a writer yourself? Oh, emerging is the word. My mother disapproved of my emerging as an author. Uh, 
Well, the first part, part of the answer is, I'm afraid, true, or even though a little absurd or comic. We had no books. I didn't see a book. We didn't have a library, and our house had two kinds of books. It had prayer books, of which the language was actually wonderful, much better than the language of prayer books now. So I had the Gospels prayer book. We had three kinds of books, sorry. I had Mrs. Beaton's cookery book, <laughs> which was stained all over with egg yolk and things, as cookery books get, and my father's bloodstock manuals, because he loved the horses. None of this was of any use to my <laughs> secret emergence, to use your good word. There was a copy of Rebecca by Daphne de Morio circulated in our village because one forlorn woman bought it. <laughs> she loaned it by the page, and I have said this <laughs> But the pages were not consecutive. <laughs> well, you got page 80, and then you went back to page 2. And it was a, did Max de Winter kill his first wife? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> My real education happened because uh, in the convent where I went as well, there were no books. There was a couple of well-intentioned, boring novels by an Irish canon. And if I tell you one of the titles, you'll get the gist of it. Um, the Homes of Tipperary, that was one. <laughs> and the other was something, Family House. I mean, they were awful. They were the worst kind of provincial, if we're going to be. I came to Dublin, and from a very young age, in convent and out of convent, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what it meant, and I wrote very gushing and rather, unfortunately, th pieces for a newspaper, and had one accepted once, which really made my heaven. I got paid a guinea. But one, one thing happened, there's always this fly in the ointment. I had a sister called Eileen, who didn't want me to be a writer. None of my family wanted me to be a writer. They thought there was shame in it, they thought there was sin in it. That's the real word. They thought there was sin in it, or within it. Anyhow, when this big article appeared, it was about a seaside place. Port Ron has not yet been discovered by Eileen O'Brien, that was my sister, who was thrilled because she got the praise, even though she hadn't the... My first experience, I have two authors to whom I owe so much, if not to say everything. The first is James Joyce, and on my half day from the chemist shop where I worked, I uh, used to go to second-hand bookshops. They had the books outside on a stall. They were very trusting. You could read the books, you could steal the books. There's a little volume published by Faber called Introducing James Joyce by T.S. Eliot. And I opened it at random. And there I come on the miraculous, and I mean the word miraculous, pages of a description of a Christmas dinner in the house of the Dedalus family, in which there's harmony, there's a fire, there's whiskey in a decanter and port wine. Everything is made for beauty. Everything is made for a wonderful day. Until suddenly there becomes an eruption about sex and politics, of which there is always an eruption in Ireland, <laughs> and probably everywhere else as well. And as I read that, up to then I'd been writing little fanciful 
out far-fetched things about skies and um, I thought oh my god this could be our family even though we may not have had the cutlass decanter but this could be our family with the preparation and the fire banked up and the flame on plum pudding it was so detailed it was so alive it was so beautiful and I bought that book for fourpence I have that book that was my first, and I would say, primal education. Because what it taught me was there is no need to go away from the power of your own experience combined with your own imagination. There's no need to be far-fetched. Just keep with the truth of it, and you'll make something magic. So that was my first. My second was reading, again, through a piece of luck, a long short story by Chekhov. And it was a story called The Step, S-T-E-P-P-E. -P -E. And it was a little boy being taken by merchants from his mother's house off to another part of Russia. A long story, but hypnotizing. And I would say I've read many other great writers. I love great poets like Emily Dickinson and Sylvia Plath, so it's not always male, but they those first two males were the two who, in their, by being able to read them, first of all by being finding them, being able to read them, not having them snatched from me, as they might be if I'd lived in a different country, or in County Clare, I wouldn't have found them. They gave me the inner faith to just keep rereading them, keep rereading them, and it's like an athlete each day you will have confidence. So uh, it, it was those, and then many, many others, and since then have I learned from. But your first loves, they say, are your most lasting loves. Well, someone said it. I didn't say it, but someone <laughs> said it. I'm going to ask a gentleman here for one last question. We're nearly hello, running hello, hello, Edna. Can you hear me okay? I'm over here, yeah. You're over there. Yeah, I'm over here. No um, ladies speaking up today. <laughs> I probably talk too much. I'm sorry. You, you mentioned about the truthfulness of the words and, and how it's important that the words have truth. And I know that some of your work has been converted to the screen. Um, some, some of your novels have, have been made into movies. Um, Not enough, by the way. I, I would... <laughs> I would absolutely, I would agree with that. But one, uh, I, I wanted to ask you how you feel about is the truth lost when that's transferred, when your words are transferred to the screen? And secondly, I know one of the movies was Z and Co with Elizabeth Taylor and I wondered if you had the chance to meet her. I hated it. It was off. <laughs> it was a walking disaster. <laughs> I have two minutes to, to, to proclaim. <laughs> two minutes to talk about Elizabeth Taylor, okay. <laughs> No, I think well, you've done that. she's a great actress, but what happened? A, a director is the most important person on a movie. I, I did not have a great director in that movie. Uh, and what happened? Elizabeth Taylor agreed to do this rather flagrant story about adultery, two women and a man. And on day one, I wasn't on the set, but it was told to me, she said, I'm not speaking these lines. So they started to rewrite on the spot, and that's disaster. With regard to the first two books, Desmond Davis, who is alive and who is a friend, he did them nice, but it would, you know, they were a little bit dated. 
if I see them now, it's everything, lots of movies from the 60s I see, and they are dated, the clothes and this and that. I think the director I would have loved for my work, every work is different, probably many people here would love him, is Ingmar Bergman. Because Bergman seemed to, whatever work he did, what, the poetic that might be in one genre, he seemed to be, not seemed to be, he was able to make something different and his own poetry that didn't st steal from the book that enhanced it. It's, there are a few great directors in the world and I'm touching wood but not going to tell you. I believe I will have one of them for the little red chairs. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I, I believe I will. indeed very good news so we will all hold our breath for that one I think I can't tell you what a fantastic film I think it would make you must be very pleased well I just want that okay we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yes, yes we won't we won't talk about it I know that you all have lots more questions I have a whole pocket full of them this could go on all afternoon but unfortunately we have to wrap it up already I'm, We've only begun. We've only just begun. <laughs> I know. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. I think one of the things that I'm very, very grateful to Edna for is that she has not only talked about writing, but also the act of reading. You're clearly a great reader as well as a great writer, Edna. I think you've given us that gift to think a little bit more about reading as well as writing. So really, it only remains for me to encourage any of you who haven't bought the book buy it and then to come along and get it signed in the book tent where Edna will no doubt be sitting for the rest of the afternoon thank signing you, her copies. Thank you thank very you. much and thank you all so much. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.